thank you. Maybe I had low expectations. This Advent, we're going to do a series on why Jesus came. And we're going to focus on, uh, there are four or five places where the Bible very succinctly says, this is why Jesus came into the world. Um, some of them, he came to seek and save the lost, it says in Mark. And he came to fulfill the law, it says in Matthew. And he came to save sinners, Paul says in Timothy. Uh, John says he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And today, we're going to maybe do the least predictable of these. It's from the Apostle John in his first letter, in which he says the reason the Son of God came into the world was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, the reason he came was to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, that is really to fulfill the promise right from the Garden of Eden that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And the whole story of God's rescue of the world is played out through this conflict uh, between God and his rebellious creature, Satan, or the devil. And Jesus' life and ministry, if you've read about it, is very full of uh, demons and conflict uh, between the two kingdoms. And so that's what we're going to think about together tonight. It's a funny thing to talk about in modern days because most of us are a little embarrassed to talk about the devil or demons. It sounds superstitious and primitive and you know it's not what you'd want to lead with when you're first meeting somebody probably uh, so a theologian uh, from the Christian tradition said this it's impossible to use electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time believe in the New Testament world of demons and spirits if he'd lived a little longer, I'd say it's impossible to use the modern convenience of the internet and not think that a devil roams the earth, right? <laughs> modern things have kind of shined a light on it. But uh, we're going to talk about what this means generally and then what it means for us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So let me pray and then we'll read the scripture. Father, please uh, help us. Uh, help us with our prejudices that we have uh, our assumptions that may uh, need to be corrected biblically, but mostly we pray you'd open our hearts to you and make us uh, love you and treasure your grace in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is 1 John 3.8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Do you remember the first uh, Hannibal Lecter movie, The Silence of the Lambs? Uh, the, uh, based off the frightening book. Um, Claire East, Jodie Foster's character. She was uh, a policewoman who was charged with investigating, trying to understand, and prosecuting Hannibal Lecter, who was the notorious cannibalistic criminal. And uh, in one of their interviews, she asked them, sort of exasperatedly, said, what could have made you like this? And he answered, nothing happened to me. I happened. And he says, 
Can you stand to say that I am evil? Can you stand to say that I am evil? And, of course, that was very difficult for her to say, very troubling for her to say, because it brings up connotations of some sort of a primitive or supernatural way of understanding the world that seems beneath us if we're uh, thoughtful and responsible people. It seems superstitious to talk about evil, even more to talk about the devil. But we have a world that we can't explain morally. Like we see things around us that we all know are part of our world, and the, the explanations we have for them, uh, natural explanations for them, never seem to answer the case when we look at serious human evil and problems in it. When we think about cruelty between human beings, which we see in ways that boggle our imaginations, brutality, corruption, abuse. Uh, when you think of a machete, you don't first think of it as a tool to be used on plants. You think of the human cruelty you've seen done with machetes. When you uh, see ovens, you quickly think of gas ovens. And you're familiar uh, anytime you open the news with problems of human trafficking, um, with uh, problems of sexually abusive uh, people towards children, even clergy members who do this towards children. And you say, how do these things happen? What happened that caused the world to be this way? And it's very hard for us just to say that evil happened, that there's evil. We say other things instead. We say, well, brain chemistry explains a lot of it. And it may do. Um, you know, um, you've seen wild effects it has on human beings when they have brain injuries at times. And uh, even if you have serotonin uptake issues, you know how uh, life and personality changing those can be. That's part of what's broken in us. Um, genetically, have things wrong with us, so we don't know that much about those things yet. But if you have an extra Y chromosome, it creates issues and we don't overlook that as an explanation for why people are evil in the world. People are poorly raised or badly abused. And this has you know, devastating effects on people and their psyches and their behavior. And we say all those things and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the end of it, even taken all together, we say, is that enough? Is that enough to explain the world we find ourselves in? Is that enough to give an account for the evil that we encounter in the world, or is there something else going on? Because you look at kind of the epitome of uh, evil in the last century was were the concentration camps in Germany, Auschwitz in particular. And Auschwitz was not done as a crime of passion. It wasn't the work of a single madman. It was uh, done dispassionately. It wasn't ignorant people. It was uh, the most literate country on earth at the time, uh, and fairly civilized, we would say, that committed these atrocities. And so you say, how does that happen? Even if you try to account for your own life, like what, what is so broken in me that I have these just reflexive instincts that seem either cruel or super defensive or deeply envious, uh, deeply selfish? Why is that? Is that, a, is that a serotonin problem? Is that only a serotonin problem? Why? How, how do you account for yourself in this world? Usually we think there's more going on than that. You know, at least uh, in our movies and books, 
we talk about more going on than that. Even socially, we talk about it more now. There's an openness now that I don't remember when I was younger for uh, believing in systemic evil and uh, systemic structures that are sinful in the world where people organizing together to do things, to create cultures and institutions, inevitably create harm in the world, even if they don't intend to. It's kind of a deference to the idea that there's more going on in the world than we understand through uh, our natural explanations. But when the Bible starts talking about um, what's broken and wrong with us, it doesn't discount any of the natural things. It's a broken world. Our brains are broken. Our families are broken. Uh, we respond badly to being badly treated. All these things uh, find no objection in the Bible. But the Bible says more than that. It also talks about personal supernatural evil. The devil and demons. Uh, creatures of God. Rebellious creatures who have uh, fallen and live in conflict and opposition to God. And in conflict and opposition with human beings and God's creation. Uh, that there is something unseen behind the scenes that has an effect on us and on our life together that is the devil and demons. So that when Christ came into the world to fix the world and to rescue us, part of what had to be done is the devil had to be stopped. And so, as John says here, uh, Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil, to put an end to evil and injustice and oppression and, oppression and barbarity uh, once and for all. So let's talk a little bit about what that means. And uh, try to suspend your disbelief a little bit if this is a hard thing for you to believe, if it seems odd to be talking about this in the 21st century with grown-ups who've been to college and stuff. Uh, but let's look at what it says, because this is really a very consistent message through the Bible. Right from the beginning, we talked about the enmity between the serpent, who represents the devil in the Garden of Eden in the Genesis accounts, and... Uh, uh, who tempted Adam and Eve to sin, uh, right away we're told that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and there will be enmity between them. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And this is, I think, universally understood to be the first declaration of the good news of God's grace in the Bible. He says, I'm not going to leave you in your rebellion. I'm not going to destroy you in your rebellion. I'm going to come and rescue you. And part of that is I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. And so that enigmatic promise is made. And then you see unfolding from that, God's promise that he's going to use Abraham's family to rescue the world, to be a blessing to all the nations. Uh, and as his family grows and develops into the nation of Israel, they live in constant contact with the uh, other kingdoms and other gods around them. And these conflicts are anticipatory or reflective of the larger conflict uh, between God and Satan. And you really see this come to a head when Jesus appears on the scene. Uh, right away, um, Herod in Rome hears about a king of the Jews coming and issues his uh, abominable decree that all the, the uh, male children in Bethlehem or anywhere around there under two years old, be killed. The slaughter of the innocents, as we remember it. Uh, there's a conflict right away in the ministry of Jesus and in his life. When he first begins his public ministry and is baptized, what does he do? He goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. If you're a skeptic, think about this at least. Jesus certainly believed in the devil and demons. 
that's pretty unarguable. But 40 days, uh, a battle with Satan, a trial like the one Adam and Eve faced and failed, Jesus faces and wins in his conflict with the devil. Um, then when he sends his disciples out uh, to speak about his kingdom coming and the good news of that, and they come back and report uh, the happy things that they saw happen, Jesus says, strangely, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven when they went and spoke to people about the good news of Jesus coming. And then we read in our New Testament passage um, that unless a strong man is bound, his house can't be plundered. And Jesus says that's what he's come to do, to bind the strong man and plunder his house to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, when he encountered people who were demonized, which was fairly often because there seems to have been a tremendous and unusual influx of activity like this around the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, there was always the conflict. The demons knew exactly who he was, uh, but they were commanded by him and defeated by him. You think of the Gerizim demoniac, who uh, this uncontrollable man whose life was in tatters socially and psychologically and physically clothed and in his right mind after Jesus healed him and removed demons from him. And then in Holy Week, uh, as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, he's speaking to his disciples about what's going to happen. In John 12, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out through his dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, he defeated Satan in his work on the cross, which is not the way we're used to thinking about the cross very much in our circles. When Paul tried to describe what Jesus had come to do, he said he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. That he triumphed over the principalities and powers and authorities uh, in his death and resurrection. And then we read that finally, uh, the devil and his and his minions will have will be condemned and judged and stopped in a final way at the second coming, in the judgment day. So I mean, this is a this is a whole Bible story, right? This conflict between the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, or the kingdom of Satan, as Jesus called it. So, um, what do you make of this? Right? If this conflict is part of the big story of the world and how things work. Uh, how am I supposed to be thinking about that day to day as somebody who's trying to follow Jesus Christ and put my trust in Him? Um, one thing you notice is our sins are like His sins. That the problem with the devil isn't that He was a bad creation, it's that He's a rebel. And we, like Him, are rebels. We are proud and want our own way and don't choose to have people reign over us. Thank you very much. Our sins are like His. And it says in our passage, that the devil has been sinning from the beginning, and when we make a practice of sinning, we do like he does. And Jesus talked to people about this. When he talked to people who were super victimized by uh, demons and had their lives destroyed, or people who were really in licentious uh, issues, enslaving and entrapping them in their lives, he always seemed to treat them like victims. Like he would relieve them of their oppression from supernatural evil. Uh, but when he spoke to people who were content with their own righteousness, uh, the religious leaders who despised him because he said they weren't good enough, he would say things to them like, you are of your father the devil. And John the Baptist did the same thing. 
so both the licentious and the uh, self-righteous uh, are both considered to be under the thrall of the devil and his kingdom. And both need to be delivered by the rescue that Jesus brings from that. So good people and bad people, um, which is a category the Bible doesn't really indulge, right? uh, we wind up both being bad people. And in these ways, we imitate and in some sense, um, uh, unbeknownst to us, follow Satan and his wishes. So, what are you supposed to do with that as a Christian? Because this conflict, your story is brought into the big story of this conflict. You live in a world where there are kingdoms that oppose each other that are real. They're not just religious opinion or someone's metaphor for understanding the world. This is described as a reality for us. Jesus certainly believed these things. Um, this conflict comes about because when you are converted... As a Christian, you become a Christian, you enter into uh, a conflict. You actually become a traitor to your old cause, and you enter the other side of the conflict, which is a strange way to think about your life. But we don't do it in our tradition, but uh, a lot of Christian traditions in the baptismal vows, uh, one of the vows is, do you renounce Satan and all his works and ways? Renounce Satan, which sort of implies that up until now I wasn't, <laughs> which seems like a strange thing to say, but it is the way the Bible talks about us and what it means to live in the world as a rebel against God. Um, do you renounce Satan and all his works? And if, as you do, and you enter into life as a Christian, uh, you enter into a conflict where you have one that opposes you in the world that you don't see, and it's very hard to make sense of. But that's the nature of your life. Uh, in the First John passage, he talks in particular about our sins, our particular uh, rebellion against God in light of who the devil is and what Jesus came to do. He says that if you make a practice of sinning, you are of the devil. And, you know, that's, that language is imprecise, I think, for a lot of us. Um, it means that you are um, relationally connected to the enterprises of the devil when you sin. Um, that all of our sin is, is not just tidy categories of right and wrong, but it's relational. Like either you're doing what pleases your Savior, your champion, Jesus, or you're doing uh, things that uh, are betrayals of Him and things that are personally hurtful to Him. When we sin, we do the things that are pleasing to uh, supernatural evil and the devil. And that's also a hard way to think about our behavior. Um, if you make a practice of sin, do you make a practice of sin? Um, no, yes. <laughs> I mean, some things you think, well, I became a Christian and I'm no longer knocking over convenience stores. I've made a real change in my life. <laughs> you know, okay, I'll buy that. But you don't say, I became a Christian, and now I'm not envious anymore, do you? Not if you're self-aware, you know. I'm no longer self-justifying and defensive. <laughs> That's part of my past now. You know, I'm not proud anymore. So do you make a practice of being self-justifying? Yeah. <laughs> so what? how are you supposed to understand this? It's like, um, 
Is he saying, are you loyal enough to Jesus to deserve his rescue? Are you a loyal enough person to Jesus to deserve his rescue? No. No. (laughs) You're not. And I'm not. And John, who wrote this, wasn't. Um, So how do we understand it? Because it sort of feels like when you talk about this conflict, you know, what do you... Everybody hates somebody who's disloyal in a conflict. And all of us find ourselves being somewhat disloyal. Take the example of Sleeping Beauty. Does this work as an analogy for the Christian faith? The princess comes under the uh, thrall and spell of the dragon witch. Uh, But Prince Philip fights his way into her castle, kills her, and rescues the princess. And that's what's happened to us. Jesus came to our rescue that way. Is that an analogy for what has happened to us? (laughs) I like the rhetorical question and answers. uh, (laughs) It doesn't feel apt because the princess seemingly was innocent and just fell under the draw and spell of the the dragon witch, um, we're culpable. We're complicit in our slavery. We're complicit in uh, our disloyalty to Jesus. And so when I read about the conflict, I think, well, I know I ought to be more loyal, but I know that I am not more loyal. And so how am I supposed to be happy about this or benefit from it? I just feel ashamed because of it. Right? So not only am I, just, am I making mistakes and doing things wrong, I'm betraying my Savior when I sin. And that doesn't feel like good news to me, honestly. <laughs> that just makes me want to keep my head down and hope Jesus doesn't look at me and notice me and maybe I can slip in the back door into heaven when I die. Um, but it's clearly written to people as messed up as you and me to encourage us that this is happy news and that Jesus has not reluctantly but delightedly come to our rescue that knowing us inside and out, he still wanted us and came to get us. And somehow our guilt can't be the barrier for us experiencing feeling that. Right? That guilt can't be the barrier. It's actually one of the main things the devil does in the world, the Bible says, is to accuse the brethren. That is to accuse, accuse Christians. That their guilt is a barrier between them and God that Jesus Jesus hasn't overcome. And that their shame about their lives is a barrier that should make them turn away from God and not expect to be loved by Him. And the accusations we hear from the evil one are, if anyone else knew what you did, they would hate you. God knows how many times you've promised to change and haven't. God knows how disloyal you are. God knows what a bad Christian you are. It's an embarrassment to him that you call yourself a Christian. You know, your soundtrack's probably meaner than that, but you know what the soundtrack is, if you've been a Christian long at all. But that's the devil's voice, not the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ is all of your treachery and disloyalty were known to God when he sent his son for you, Known to Jesus when he went on the cross voluntarily for you to bear your sins. And now gone from your relationship with God. He came to rescue you. He knew what you needed rescuing from. 
You needed rescuing from your treachery. You needed rescuing from your betrayals of Him. And if He could have, He could have fixed you immediately, but He didn't. He's going to. He's in the process of it. But He loves you and knows you and you're His child. And this is how He's doing it. And you have to be content somehow to say, this is true. That He's not ashamed of me. That my guilt is not a surprise to Him and it is not bigger than Jesus. That Jesus is my champion has come to my rescue and I might as well say it like Prince Philip coming to get the princess in Sleeping Beauty because in his mind, his single-mindedly loving me and coming to get me, not hating me, not despising me, not being constantly disappointed in me. <coughs> or in you. That's the good news. He knew you before He came. He knows what's going to happen the rest of the time with you. Um, and He's not going to quit loving you now. You're not going to finally break the camel's back with that one struggle. Because Jesus is bigger than your life. His grace is bigger than your sin. Therefore, you can enjoy Him as your hero and your rescuer and your champion. Even if your obedience is imperfect because it is, even if what you do for Him seems small, because it probably is. Even if your motives aren't pure, because they aren't. He accepts these things as service to Him. And when you do small things, little things, to push back against the evil one in His kingdom, you pour honor on the name of your Savior Jesus Christ. You really did. Not because He's deluded about your motives or thinks that, you know, because you fooled Him that you're really, really, really good. Uh, but because His mercy is real. You pour honor on His name and you push back and strike blows against the kingdom of Satan with your small obediences. When you speak up a word for the oppressed, you strike a blow for your hero, Jesus Christ. And you push back against Satan's kingdom. When you bite your tongue, when you're ready to defend yourself and justify yourself, you strike a blow against Satan's kingdom. When you go to your mundane job and stay at your post all day and don't quit, um, you strike a blow against Satan's kingdom and you put honor on the name of your champion. When you pray for the kingdom to come, you strike a blow against the evil one. When you don't light the flamethrower of your anger with your family members or fellow drivers, you strike a blow for the kingdom. Small things. When you say no to your, to your illicit lusts, you strike a blow for the kingdom and you pour honor on the name of your champion. Uh, that's a beautiful thing. That's good news for us. At the end of Romans, I know you remember this because of that amazing sermon series we did on Romans. Uh, in Romans 16, though, Paul says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He says that to Christians. Not that we're the champion, not that we're the ones who came to destroy the works of the devil. But in connection with Jesus, the lives we live with our small obediences and our small progresses, he says, we'll soon crush Satan under our feet. And that's good news. It's not yet, of course. Advent's the not yet time anyway, right? You, we're waiting like you wait for Christmas. Church spends time at Advent saying things are not the way they're supposed to be, but they're going to be that way. And so we wait. We wait. And part of that is waiting with your own brokenness, your own lousy Christianity, uh, your own double-mindedness, your own promises that you've made and broken so many times to Jesus about how you're going to live and what you're going to do. Um, you wait 
and it stinks, and you don't want it. But things aren't always going to be this way. Satan's tragedy in this world will end. Your sins will end. You will one day be fully and finally single-minded and full-hearted in your love and devotion to Jesus. And not because you've climbed the ladder so far, but because Jesus Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Let's pray.